Mr. Joe McClain, as we continue our journey into rediscovering the sacred, the return to sacred, one thing that stuck out to me that I thought you, of all people, could offer some insight into because this is your profession. It's what you do in media. You tell us every day, almost every day of the week, about what's going on in the world and why this matters. And a few years ago, in response to a global virus that was spreading quite rapidly, and a lot of people didn't know what was going on, in response to that, in our Catholic Church, a lot of our bishops said, we're just going to shut down the churches. We're going to close the doors and just have you stay home for a while. So why should the world like care about the sacred or stop this diminishing value that we have of the sacred if our leaders in the church are saying, we're going to take the most sacred thing away from you? Is there like a therefore like, well, the sacred really matter if they can just easily take sacred away from us that fast? I'll never forget. I was, uh, it was a Wednesday night. I was at mass. It was a traditional at mass too. Praise be to God. This was before I started going to the TLM full time. And, uh, I was thinking, you know, the next day I was supposed to talk to Bishop Strickland on my radio show. I was excited about that. Looking forward to talking to Bishop Strickland I get out of mass and I check my phone and I see the news. Bishop Strickland had shuttered his parishes. Uh, he had been asked to uh, lock down because of the, the pandemic. And I was a little bit in shock over that thinking like, man, I didn't, I thought he would hold out. And, um, like, what am I going to say? Like, do I bring it up? Like, I was, I was hurt by that. Right. So I was like, I really was conflicted as to what I was going to, you know, bring it up with him or not on the radio. And so I get him on the radio. He's a great, he's, he's one of the best you're ever going to talk to straightforward, not pretentious, can talk about literally anything. He's not afraid of your questions. So, you know, I'm just, I said, you know, Bishop, I said, I want you to imagine for a second, what, what would you call a dad who locked his kids out of his bedroom, locked the door. They're not allowed in there. Like shut the door on them. Don't come near me. Don't come in here. Like, what would you, what, what kind of a dad would do that? You know, he, I can't remember exact words, but you know, he acknowledges like, yeah, that's a, like, we would say that's not a good dad. And that's kind of where we were at. It's like, Bishop, I gotta be honest with you. You, you bishops, you priests, you're the spiritual fathers and you have shut us out from the one thing that is the most important to us, which is sacramental grace. How many people won't receive the sacrament of reconciliation, let alone last rites in a hospital? And I can tell you, there's been many people who died without last rites because of that pandemic. Golly, Jewess, why didn't we leave, lead with our greatest gift, sacramental grace, versus play this game of playing it by the, wor the world's rules and regulations? I talked to him on more than one occasion on the radio show during the pandemic, and that was the nature of our conversations. And he admitted that he, he acknowledged that that was a huge conflict. But I think the reality was we decided as a church 
to let the lawyers tell us what we could or could not do instead of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I think that was obviously a very pivotal moment, a watershed moment, as some would say, in the history of the church in our modern era. You know, I often see Catholic families, their bar is really too low. Like the things that they desire in life. We, we talk a good game. I put myself in the same category. We talk a good game about wanting to be solid, zealous Catholics, on fire Catholics. We, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about that. But I think when the going gets tough and the tough get going, the reality is what do we really, really want in life? We want blue skies, low humidity, sunshine, money in the back pocket. We want our kids to go to a, a really great school. I mean, they got to go to a college, right? University. They can't just like, they wouldn't be anything in life. They won't even be considered human beings if they don't go to a major university. I'm not talking about no school in Ohio either. Okay. I'm talking about good schools like Texas A&M or something along those lines. I mean, if you really had to suffer, maybe UT, possibly Notre Dame, but otherwise you may not even be an actual human being if you don't have that paper on your kid's wall, because otherwise, how are they going to live in a great neighborhood, drive great cars, you know, wear fancy clothes and have good friends unless they go to college. And at the end of the day, that's really all we really want in life. Well, we don't actually want more than that. If we're being honest, I mean, look at the modern day Republican conservative party. They don't conserve marriage. They don't conserve life at conception. There's a lot. They are no longer conserving at all, let alone the liberals on the, on the far left side as well. And Catholics rarely see the world through their Catholic lens. They see the world through their political associations, through their friends, through their family. And we make way too many compromises. Like we go through a divorce, all of a sudden we're like rationalizing all of our choices. It must be now okay. We have a we have children who leave the church. They 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 claim they're gender fluid or whatever. All of a sudden, you know, hey, they were born that way. Like we rationalize everything and all of our choices in life. Yeah, I need four cheeseburgers to get through my day. Who are you to judge? You know what I'm saying? Like that's the world we live in, and I think. The reality is, it, how can we blame the hierarchy of the church? And I'm, and I'm the guy who does. I, that's part of my job, really, is to, is to call a spade a spade. And I can be very critical of the hierarchy and the decisions they make. But you know what? Bishops, priests, popes, they're not born on, on trees. You know, like They come from families. So we get what we deserve. We get the hierarchy that we have deserved. If we have lived secular lives, if instead of you know being sojourners on the way towards the promised land, we have decided, hey, this is, place is great. I just, I just want more of this place. Give me more of the, this world. Well, then we can expect a very worldly hierarchy to, uh, to be the result of, of that sort of lifestyle. And are we not seeing that? I mean, that you know, basically we have sold ourselves down the river with too many compromises. We act as though we can solve the world's problems through secular practical means versus the spiritual warfare that God has commanded us to conduct. You know, we are here to 
uh, be here for a temporary time, not permanent. We're here to convert as many people as possible. I mean, when's the last time you heard uh, a, a priest preach a homily saying, every single one of your neighbors, your friends, your family members, all of your coworkers, every single person that you see and meet in life are all expected to be Catholic before they die. Just so you know, that's our mission. There's no plan B. Like you, you don't hear that ever, ever. And I mean, just take a temperature, right? Like, you know, the old saying used to be, if I found your checkbook, could I convict you of being a Christian just based on your, your finances? Now it would have to be, if I found your, you know, your uh, Vimeo or whatever that, Venmo or whatever those, those apps, PayPal, whatever those apps are called, your, your crypto wallet. I mean, like, could I convict you of, uh, of the way you live your life like a Christian? Or would, would I just find a secularist? What kind of music do you listen to? What, what movies do you watch? You're like, what is your, what is your favorite pastime? Do you, how much time do you spend in prayer versus you spend on Netflix, Amazon Prime? Or, and I'm, I'm as guilty as the next guy because I love to be entertained. And when I'm off, I want to be off. I want, I want downtime. I, I want to have a good time is just like everybody else, you know, but, uh, the reality is we, we basically give, give ourselves a pass on so many things in life. And if we're doing that and we're the practicing Catholics, imagine then what semi-lukewarm Catholics are doing, right? Like, so I think it all starts with us at the end of the day. And, um, and again, like, okay, here's another example. Right now, what are we looking at? Like 67-ish percent, depending on the poll, you, you look at us uh, of Catholics don't actually believe in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Either they reject it wholesale, they don't understand it, or their eyes, their, their, their heart wants to believe, but their eyes can't see it, so they struggle with it. Somewhere on that scope is about 67% of Catholics. We have a, a weekly mass attendance rate of in the neighborhood of 17%-ish, just depends on on where you are and the poll that you look at. So we have a crisis on our hands. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. U.S. bishops agree that there's a crisis here. What is their solution to that? Well, they wanna hold a big event next year. Good, fantastic. We're all gonna get together. It's gonna be a fun time. We're gonna hold hands. We're gonna sing Kumbaya. Man, we might even have some liturgical dancers. Who knows? It's going to be a party. It's going to be a good time. My question is, for the million, a few, it's like, it's like almost $3 million we're going to spend on that event, by the way. For that kind of spend, 80,000 people showing up in Indianapolis, what are we going to get for our money? What are we going to get for our time? Will Or are we going to go from 67% that don't believe to 50 are we going to go down to 50%? I mean, are we going to get at least a halfway, half of Catholics everywhere, believe or don't believe? Like, what are we going to get for our money? And I, I think the bottom line is nobody's even asked that question because that's not the goal, right? So why can't we be honest about the problems? Like, that's another issue. Like, we can't even, not only do we rationalize, but then we... We, we, we kid ourselves because we don't actually want to address the real problem and we don't want to address it in a sober and sincere way and to talk about the actual things that we could and could not do that might move a needle in someone's heart, that might change someone's a thought and thinking process on what the church teaches or doesn't teach about the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist and therefore might actually change their life in the way that they see the world around them. So if we're not willing to 
be honest about that. If all we're going to do is hold a big event, a mountaintop experience, a high, we're going to get that dopamine rush of being in a giant room full of, of, uh, of, uh, you know, waving hands, singing Catholics and have a great time doing it. Praise God. I'm not saying that's not a, that's a bad thing. I'm saying it's fine, but it's not actually going to move the needle. So when, when that weekend comes and goes and everybody's got to go back to work, and they got to go back to their spouses crying and complaining about this, that, or the other thing. They got their bosses breathing down their neck. Their kids are are, are not happy campers. They're just going to go right back to the trenches, right back to the valley, right back to the desert, right back to the dryness, right back to right where they were. I mean, three days later, and what's changed? Not much, because that's what happens after the mountaintop. We all enjoy the mountaintop. We like our retreat experiences, but it's the valley that matters where life has to be lived. And that's where the devil puts the most pressure on us. And if we're not going to talk about the things like, what does it mean to be truly present at, at the sacred liturgy? What does it mean to, to uh, we, we throw this, these words around like, like participation at mass, like participation is some, you know, emotional experience. Can we just all hold hands? Can we just, can we just light a candle and just sit here and hold hands and just pray for a second? Like, I feel so participatory. Like how I feel means nothing. St. Paul did not care about my feelings when he talked about what he was commanded to hand on. St. Paul did not care about how I felt when he wrote in Hebrews chapter 12, and yes, it was St. Paul that wrote that. I don't care what your biblical scholar says. It was St. Paul that wrote it. St. Paul wrote uh, Hebrews chapter 12, where he says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Heaven and earth collide at Mount Calvary, and that is the Holy Mass. He describes the Mass to a T in Hebrews chapter 12, and he does not care about how I feel about that. Because ultimately, it is about what we owe God. And I think, how many Catholics sit here and go, you know, I owe God something. Oh God, my adoration. I owe God my best. I owe God my uh, my good effort, my attitude to uh, to do whatever it is He's put in front of me today with the best of my ability and the least of my complaints. But I, I don't even know that many practicing Catholics that'll think that way or say those things. Let alone the lukewarm and the average. So I guess uh, at the end of the day, if if us zealous Catholics li are living pretty much secular lives with a tent of Catholicism. How do we expect the world around us to be any different tomorrow? And I, always, I often think of this. I got in trouble once. I was speaking at a conference and I give these, uh, I give like motivational evangelization type of, I, my job is to kick them in the pants. Like that's how I see my role. I'm not a Scott Hahn, you know, I'm not a Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. You know, I'm the guy who's like, uh, I served in the Marine Corps, so kicking someone in the pants, okay, I can do that, like, sure. So that's my job and that's what I was doing. And I always like to compare us to the saints. You know, we when we think of the saints, I think of people like St. Max Colbe, St. Padre Pio, St. Therese of Calcutta, St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, St. Jose Sanchez del Rio, a 13 year old kid who would rather have the skin flayed from the bottom of his feet than to reject Christ. But let alone, they held him in a, in a uh, uh, they, they took over a church, converted it into a, like a prison, a makeshift prison. And they put him in the sacristy. They were holding him in the sacristy for seven days while they ransacked the, the sanctuary and used it like a barn and cockfighting. 
Jose Sanchez is a 13-year-old, asked to go to the restroom, so they let him out of the room. What's the first thing he does? He chases down the cocks and breaks their necks. And they, these Mexican soldiers were like, you just killed my prize fighting rooster. And he's like, this is God's house, and I will not put up with it. 13 years old. Like, do you know? I'm, I'm 49 years old. I'm an old man. Would I have the courage of that kid? I don't know. I'm not so sure. Like, you know what I mean? Like, would, would St. Jose Sanchez del Rio put up with the clown mass? I don't think so. I don't. I think that man would be more of a man than any of the men that I know today in many ways. Like, uh, you know, see what I'm saying? Like St. Teresa of Avila. I mean, you just go through the list and there's so many like incredible saints uh, of our of our church. And we look at their life and the choices they made, the sacrifices they endured and compare them to ours. And like, man, if my coffee is not piping hot when I order it, whew, look out lady, I'll put you, I'll make you famous on TikTok. I'll pull out my phone. Like, you see what I'm saying? It's like, we live in such a secular world. We, we think in terms of secularism. So is it any surprise that we build our churches, at least there, it's a bit of a reversal on the trend these days, but for the last 60 years, we built man-centered, spaceship-looking, oddball, green carpet, felt banner, nonsensical churches. Notre Dame, they just released the, the, the drawings for their rebuild of the Notre Dame. What's it look like? A Freemason Lodge. I mean, it's like, who's in charge here? It was grand and beautiful for a thousand years. Pilgr millions went there on pilgrimage for a thousand years from all over planet Earth. They went there because why? Because it elevated the heart and mind to God because you walked in and you could not help but look up. Now you look in, you're like, oh, this is just like the rest of it. Modernistic, man-centered. So we have, we have forfeited the beauty and grandeur of the sacred, the good, the true, and the beautiful for a lie. And that lie is that this world, the here, the flesh, the world, the devil is good enough because we want to be friends with the world because we want the world to love us because we, who doesn't want to be loved? I mean, we want to get along. We want people to think we are cool, right? It's like when mom and dad want to be the cool parents amongst their kids' friends, right? So they, what do they do? <laughs> All the sodas around. Hey, you want some more donuts? Have another. Like, you know, I know your mommy wouldn't like that, but you're at our house. It's fine. Have more donuts. Like, did God put us on this planet to be loved? I mean, it boggles the mind. The Lord said, they're going to hate you because of me. And yet we have rejected that for some emotional experience in this world. And uh, boy, golly gee whiz, I, just thinking about my own life and, the, and what judgment I will have to face, uh, when I die, I'm not even begin. I'm not even ready. I'm not even close to being ready for that. So how do we, how can we expect as Catholics, how can we expect uh, the world around us to have an appreciation of the good, the true, and the beautiful if we ourselves live as though this world is simply good enough? I think we have to remember what St. Max Colbert, St. Uh, Philip Howard, St. Edmund Campion, you know, all of the most incredible saints of our patrimony. So, uh, the other day, my wife and I watched the, the film uh, on form.org of St. Paquita. St. Paquita! 
I mean, St. Saint Josephine, she was kidnapped, enslaved, abused, beaten, uh, mocked, ridiculed, and everyone around her changed. She didn't change, they changed. Why? Because she lived like a saint and she hadn't even, she wasn't even baptized yet. And she was already living like a saint. She already lived as though there is a God and that God has a say and that say ought to be the rule of our life. And her baptism was a confirmation of that truth that was put in a, as a seed inside of her. And her life, her very existence was that seed that transformed everyone around her. We're too busy being transformed by the world around us rather than transforming it. We need to be like St. Paquita. I don't think she'd put up with what we put up with on a daily basis. So why are we surprised that we have sold sacredness down the road? One of the common themes that you seem to be speaking on that, that was resonating through your catechesis there was fear. And you started off with that point and then you talked about lawyers and one job that, you know, one of the main things that lawyers do, they just manage fear. Their job is to be fearful of everything and negotiate through that, that fear. But you, you also talked about the desire of low-hanging fruit and marriage and rationalizing and there seemed to be some fear attached to that as well. Fear of believing in a real presence of the Holy Eucharist. Um, fear about being honest. There's a desire we cling easily to those emotional things because I think there's a fear of going deeper than just our emotions. Uh, um, you, you talked about um, the dead as well um, or how we should um, approach our relationship with God like we owe him something. But I think there's like a fear of debt, whether it's secular debt, whether it's finances or it's anything we owe someone. I think sometimes there's there's a fear in in, in coming making in, um, uh, making reconciliation with that what we owe. And so I want you to like talk about that as well because it seemed to be like a, a current that was running through everything you were saying. Like how is fear antithetical? Does this pursuit of fear almost, how is that antithetical to the pursuit of the sacred? I love that you asked this question. <laughs> um, you know, you go back to the Garden of Eden and you see how fear works in Adam and Eve, you know, after they decided, you know, to fall, to fall towards temptation, to eat of the forbidden fruit. And they're hiding in the garden in the cool of the day. And the Lord is walking, and uh, you know that word uh, for him walking. The Hebrew word is ko, and that word does not mean snapping twigs, like you know, like we would imagine in our minds, just like we, like just kind of how we imagine that, like a gardener snake, snake hanging, dangling from a tree, like a tiny little thing, you know. No, the the word for for the snake was nahash, and we should be thinking seven headed dragon, like in uh, Revelation chapter twelve. So you have the great dragon, the nahash the Leviathan, the creature that has come into this garden sanctuary, the king, the priest, prophet, and king of which was Adam. So all creatures were named by him, for starters. So he is the king that gives him kingly power. The fact that he named all of them gives him kingly power over those creatures. So he ought to have commanded that this creature get out. And if this creature was going to kill him, which was breathing the threat of doing so, the very physical presence was a physical threat. So Adam should have said, what? cried out to the, with loud cries and lamentations to the one who was able to save him as the last Adam, 
uh, would, would do in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Also in a garden. So Adam had recourse to God, could have called out, didn't, totally sat there, said nothing, allowed, allowed a woman, the, the Eve, to, to do all the talking. That's not her job. That was not her vocation. Adam was the one to Abudah and Shamar. He was the one to keep and protect, as Hebrews or Genesis chapter 2 makes clear. But he didn't. He allows her to do it. So here we are. Once she made that choice, what was he going to do? Like, he already determined there was no creature like Eve anywhere in the creation. Nobody smelled as good, was as beautiful, and as soft and cuddly as Eve was, and he wasn't going to go back to hanging out with a donkey. So he had no choice at that point. He decided to commit the mortal sin, and then they were in fear. They're hiding in a bush, and God walks away and say, Adam, where are you? Like, as if he doesn't know, like, God does not know where Adam and Eve are. Of course he knows. He's not dumb. He knows exactly what happened. This is a proto-confession. He is calling them to confession. He's at least meeting them halfway, for crying out loud. God comes to them instead of us going to him. He comes to them, draws them out, draws into a confession. But what does Adam do in his fear? He is now in an emasculated state. And he is blaming not just the woman. It is the woman that you gave me. So now he blames God. He's putting the blame on God for the trouble that he is in. And, uh, and then we see, of course, the penances are given out to the thorns and the thistles, the sweat of his brow. He will have to work that land in toil. And the woman, her labor will be in pain and her relationship with her husband will always be difficult and painful. Don't believe me? Ask my wife. She'll tell you all about it. Fear because of sin. Now fast forward. Fast forward to the Exodus account. And Moses, uh, out of fear, tried to get out of at the burning bush, going back into the into Egypt to bring the people out. I'm not a, I'm not an I'm, I'm not an eloquent man. Send somebody else. God was like, whatever, dude. Listen, Aaron's going to meet up with you. It's going to be fine. The two of you got this. Now go. For crying out loud, go. So he finally goes, and, and we all know the story, the plagues, the battles, 10 plagues, 10 battles against foreign pagan gods. They die. The one true God lives. And uh, it should be testimony enough for all naysayers to go, wow, the one true God just slayed 10 Egyptian gods. That's good enough for me. I'm all in. Praise be to God. Let's do this thing. But the it, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, uh, manna from heaven. Flesh, the quail come from the sky, a water from a rock. Like, golly, these knuckleheads. And I mean you and me, by the way, not just them. Like, we need so many miracles day after day after day just to prove that he loves us, cares for us, and is going to provide for our needs. Like, we are so thick-headed. So you get, and there's, they get all the way to Sinai. And when they get, when they come into the region of Sinai, God tells Moses, all right, Moses, look, here's the deal, okay? You need to go and prepare the people because I want to meet them because we are going to become family. All right. That's the deal here, Moses. We are going to become family. I need you to prepare the people. They need to purify themselves. And on the third day, approach the mountain, approach me, and we're going to become family in a covenant relationship. So Moses goes about the camp and tells them all, listen, prepare yourself. Three days. You have to remain pure. 
and ritually wash yourself to purify yourself so that you're clean and prepared and ready to go for when the Lord comes down and meets us and becomes family. So three days come and three days go. They come to the mountain. Fire comes down on top of that mountain. What do the people do? God warns them at that point. It's like, tell them don't approach because if they approach, they will be consumed because God is an all-consuming fire. Why could Adam and Eve not re-enter the Garden of Eden? Because they were in sin. They needed to be redeemed. And if you are imperfect and you try to enter into perfect, you will be consumed. Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean can enter it. Or you go to St. Paul's Catechesis on purgatory, which is a symbol of fire that consumes the material, wood, straw, stubble, all that gets burned up. What's left? Only what is pure and perfect remains. That is purgatory in scripture. Well, Adam and Eve couldn't go back into the garden. The fiery sword prevented the way because they were in sin. Now you have the people who were supposed to approach the mountain, but now can't. Why? What gives? They clearly did not take Moses's uh, warning seriously. They did not remain chaste and pure in preparation for this meeting with God the Father, and they were now not allowed to touch that mountain. Only Moses was allowed to go forward at that point. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is when we are in sin, and what did the people say? Remember, what did the people say? Moses, we no, they draw back when they saw that fire, when they heard the trumpets, the co of the Lord come rushing down on top of this mountain, like a loud sound that just scared the nonsense out of them. I mean, think about that first time that we ever heard that theme song, Darth Vader in his black suit come through the smoke. Dum, dum, da, dum, dum, dum. We were like, our hearts were beating. We were like, whoa, like, oh man, that was heavy, right? Or that scene in uh, in Rogue One where he's in that tunnel and it's just dark and the red, I mean, like, we were like, whoa, that is like, that's how they felt times a thousand because the, re the reality would hit them hard that they were in sin and they could not enter into perfection because they would be consumed and nothing would be left. So they backed off in, in fear and they sent Moses forward. Because if we are in sin, we fear the Lord for our death and destruction. If we are in a state of grace, we have a holy fear of the Lord in reverence and in awe. There is the distinction. Fear is a good thing in that it tricks our conscience to either remain right with the Lord or get right with the Lord before it is too late. But you know neither the day nor the hour, so you better get after it and get after it fast. I remember sitting in RCIA class when I asked my uh, wife to marry me and she said I had to become Catholic. And I was a third degree Master Mason at the time. Anti, I was not anti-Catholic, but I was, certainly wasn't practicing much of anything besides hedonism. And uh, and I remember sitting in this RCIA class and I had a mystical, mystical experience where we were going over the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, blessed are the pure in spirit for they shall see God. When, when, that, when those words were read, a time stopped for me. And I was just in this moment of total clarity. And the Lord gave me this gift. And I realized in that instant, I was not pure. 
And if I died at this moment, I would not see God. I remember thinking this so clearly. It was just so amazing. I just, like, just, I will not see God. And I knew that that was, like, wrong. That was bad. That was horrible. Like, you, you want to see God. And the reality hit me. And, and I said to myself, I am not prepared. I said, I'm a slave. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm a slave to my disordered passions. I'm a slave to my lust. There's no way I'll see God. And then I said to myself, maybe someday, maybe someday down the road in the future, I will be free and then could be pure and hopefully see God. Maybe someday. I knew what I would do that very night when, when I would go back to our apartment because we were cohabitating before marriage. And because, you know, you had to test drive this thing. You just can't. What is she going to do when I leave my underwear on the floor in the bathroom for crying out loud? We got to know that ahead of time. You know, so uh, we were test driving this thing out, making all the rationale and excuses I could possibly come up with. But I knew that I would use porn that night to self-gratify and uh, abuse myself, abuse my future spouse and and destroy my relationship with God. And, and I, that's exactly what I did because I was a slave. And the reality is, if I were to die in mortal sin, I would be a slave for all eternity to not only my own sin, but I'd be a slave to the demons who would abuse me for all eternity in hell. Fear, fear can wake you up. But too often, we have gotten so used to living in our fear that we have become complacent and comfortable. And that voice that is supposed to prick our, prick our consciences and say, wake up and wake up now, starts to get quieter and quieter and quieter over time. And that, to me, is one of the most scary things about the reality of the world we live in. And one last question as we wrap up um, your lesson here. How, would, how, would, how does the traditional Latin mass, how does it, you would say, even without comparison, just just judging it just on its own merits, like how does it lead and guide us to the sacred? That's a great question. I struggled with the traditional math, with Latin and the traditions of the church for a long time, actually, um, because I had a disordered approach towards liturgy at all. Um, I probably would have felt the same way if I had gone to a Greek divine liturgy or you know, Melkite or you know, Cyril Malabarian, or you have it, right? Um, I did not, when I came into the church, my experience, because I had grown up Protestant, it, what I was experiencing in the, in the mass wasn't all that different from my Protestant days. I and mean, there were differences, even big significant differences, but the, the feel was fairly similar. So it was okay, no big deal. Like I had no concept of tradition until much later. And I don't say that to make comparisons, but to say that my own journey on this road has become one of discovery. I remember going to a, a Latin Novus Ordo at Orientum, everything in Latin except for except for the readings and the homily, of course. And I I would have thought that was a traditional Latin mass. It wasn't. It was just Novus Ordo in Latin at Orientum. But I remember struggling at that mass, thinking, I don't know what they're even saying. I can't even follow along. I mean, can we can we sing uh, like a like a like a Marty Hoggins hymn or something? I'm like, can we hold hands? Like, what is going on here? I struggled with all of those things because I couldn't understand, wrap my head around 
around what these things signified. Why in the world did the choir seem to stretch syllables out for 10 minutes? Like, come on now, guys. And then it was a slow process until, I mean, I'm still on the journey like everybody else, but where I'm at today, I have to say, I've come to realize, you know, we can never please God. You know, there's no, we can't do enough. There's like, there's not a, there's not a, there's not a list of things I can go do that will earn God's love. I can't be perfect enough to deserve God's love. God's so gratuitous. God is so good in loving so imperfect a, a, cre a creature as myself. But here's what I can do. I can be intentional. I can put my heart into it. And even though I'll never achieve it, even though I'll never get there, I, my heart, my intention could be to strive as hard as I can to sweep that floor with the greatest care, the greatest love. But hold on, nobody's ever gonna see the fact that I let, that I, I went in, in extra detail into the crumbs in the corner. Nobody's ever gonna see, they're not gonna bend down, look down there and see that, but God will, God's gonna know that. God's gonna know that I put that extra heart, effort and intention into it. So for God, between he and I, it's our little secret, I'm gonna do that. How much more ought we to do that in our public liturgy? Because we owe God adoration. You know, why, why is it a mortal sin to miss mass on Sunday? Because we owe God adoration. We owe it to him. We don't go to, we don't go to feel good. We don't go to, to, to feel in community. Mass is not about community. Mass is about giving to God what is just. If we give to our neighbor what is just, how much more do we give to God what is just? It is, it is right, good, and true. It is just to give to God our absolute greatest effort and best intention uh, in adoration and in worship, to make reparation for the many sins that have been committed against him, against, his, against the Blessed Mother, against Holy Mother Church, against the saints, against our neighbors, right? So uh, for that reason, I have come to discover through this journey that I've been on, we stretch those syllables out in Latin, in the choir, to be intentional. I mean, it's why? Because we can, because that's one of the things we can do to give God that little intentional of our, intention of our heart. We, we can be precise in our actions intentional in our in our liturgy and i i particularly love the fact that it's connected like if saint max colbe were in the room with me saint padre pio saint jose sanchez del rio uh uh saint paquita you know like all, all the coolest saints on planet earth in the history of our church if they were right there with me they would be in familiar territory they wouldn't be lost they wouldn't have to be looking for a missile to figure out where they were we would all be on the same page all facing ad orientum towards the rising sun towards the east meeting the lord you know there's a there if you go to the holy land which i've yet to go to but there's a place called shechem and a, a, a shechem's a little ancient city where joshua brought the people there's two hills it's a shechem's in a valley there's two hills that that's high above shechem and uh, there were altars placed on both of uh, these hills where offerings were made by the people when they came into the Holy Land led by Joshua. And one is the, uh, the altar of curses and the other is the altar of blessings. Recently, they discovered that they have an actual, um, 
uh, in the archaeological dig site, they have a, an actual, um, it's a lead tablet that was folded in two that Joshua probably held in his hand. And it recounts the curses uh, that were that were told there. You know, and this is where you get the, as for me and my house, I shall serve the Lord in Joshua chapter 24. That's this place. And there is a, a huge stone altar. You can go see it today. It's there. They've, they, they found this in, in archaeology. It's built such that uh, the priest would have walked up this ramp and he would have stood there. And the, all of the Israelites would have been behind him and all of them would have been facing liturgically east, all facing the rising sun, all facing and going to meet the Lord. And they would have offered their sacrifice in unison to the Lord. The practice of Ad Orientum predates the Catholic Church. It is the ancient liturgy. It is the ancient worship come and brought to its perfection in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice for us. And I would say that what I have learned on my journey towards the traditional at mass is that the effort to be intentional, the effort to be sacred, the sacred silence, the sacred participation is not an emotional one. It's not a community participatory one. It's that intention to be present, to give to God, along with my neighbors from all over planet Earth, different, every tribe and every tongue. We are all on the Latin language at this point, united in Ad Orientum, united to the priest at the altar, doing the sacred work, wearing the sacred apron, doing this, this sacred act to, uh, to give to God what is owed to him. And my intention is the participation that matters most. And how often have I sat at a mass totally distracted, thinking about everything other than what I'm supposed to be doing right then and there. Uh, or I just make sure I say the responses, but my mind and heart are elsewhere. And so I would say what I have learned is to be intentional through the traditional at mass. John McClain, thank you for this catechesis and instruction. Thank you. Praise be to God. I'm so glad to have had the chance to talk to you today.